Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist and the author of the Complete Compliance Handbook. And I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA, episode 110 for the week ending July 6, 2018, the post-holiday edition. As we begin the post-holiday portion of our July 4th week, Jay Rosen and I are back in the saddle again to take a look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories. But first, a word about our sponsors, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional, independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitors is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 600 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance program, visit our sponsor's website, www.affiliatedmonitors.com. We start with Credit Suisse, settlement with the Department of Justice and SEC for its illegal hiring practices of family members violating the FCPA. We consider how Homeland Security Investigations helps FCPA investigations. We take a look at ZTE starting its comeback by changing senior management. Jim Bean goes down harshly with an FCPA violation in India. The 1MDB scandal continues to percolate along with the arrest of the former Prime Minister of Malaysia around the scandal. Matt Kelly explores the two parts of compliance in a discussion of Michigan State and Larry Nasser. We ask if there should be a difference between reimbursement and remediation in the OXIF matter. Africa Resources says yes, and they make their case to the Department of Justice. We conclude with taking a look at why investigators should prepare for artificial intelligence. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. The 10 for of This Week in FCPA for the week ending July 6th, 2018, the post-holiday edition. As we begin our post-holiday portion of the July 4th week, Jay Rosens, Mr. Monitors, and myself are back in the saddle again to take a look at some of the top compliance and ethics stories over the past week. Jay, we uh, actually had quite a um, FCPA and Compliance Week, so you want to jump right into it with uh, telling us about Credit Suisse? Sure. And uh, before I do that, you said we're on episode 110, uh, where my wife is working now in Northridge, California. It is 114 degrees in the shade. And right here in balmy Simi Valley, it's 109. So I think it's significant that both the podcast and the weather is in triple digits. Um, Credit Suisse is a story we've heard before. Uh, It falls into the uh, princeling hiring schemes that have affected uh, in the past in 2016, uh, JP Morgan uh, paid a fine, uh, BN Mellon did in 2015, and Chipmaker Qualcomm did as well. And uh, basically, uh, Credit Suisse and its Hong Kong uh, unit agreed to pay the DOJ $76.7 million for a referral hiring scheme that violated the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Um, they will pay $47 million to the DOJ, 
And then the Zurich-based parent Credit Suisse Group settled uh, a concurrent uh, issue with the SEC. They will disgorge $24.9 million of uh, ill-gotten gains, and they will uh, pay more than $4.8 million in prejudgment interest. Uh, what's interesting about this is it's uh, definitely an apparent reflection of the Fed's new no-piling-on policy. The SEC said it didn't impose a civil penalty based upon the imposition of the $47 million criminal fine. So um, this has been going on now. Uh, the investigation has been going for the last several years. So I guess my question, Tom, is do we think that there are any more of these in the pipeline, or do you think that uh, the, the investigation on the Prince has run its course? So I guess my sense would be, Jay, there there are probably more in the pipeline. Uh, the conduct of Credit Suisse, I think, was between 2007 and 2013. So uh, indicating, uh, once again, how long some of these FCPA matters take, uh, I would say we or the Department of Justice and the SEC probably had to deal with uh, multiple Enforcement agencies across the globe, getting documents literally across the globe is uh, is always uh, not necessarily problematic, but it certainly takes time. So uh, I think it would not surprise me to see this uh, going uh, more enforcement actions going forward. Um, companies, I think, have gotten the message now, certainly starting with BNY Mellon and the uh, $284 million fine against J.P. Morgan. What struck me, Jay, about this case was, first of all, over a seven-year period, Credit Suisse Hong Kong hired more than 100 employees at the request of foreign officials. And the company in Hong Kong clearly knew that this was uh, a violation of internal company policy and procedure and went out of their way to uh, hide this from the corporate parent, uh, even to the point of... Um, typing up resumes for candidates. To the extent they could, they avoided uh, sending candidates through the regular hiring process. Um, they promoted and retained candidates at the re specific request of foreign government officials and of employees of state-owned enterprises. They even took uh, uh, one uh, candidate hire, her employee, I guess, was brought to the United States for some reason, and they brought the person's mother along. Um, to do some shopping. So uh, it was pretty clear what was going on at Credit Suisse. It was pretty clear they knew uh, what they were doing, uh, at least in Hong Kong, to violate the law. So um, we had a uh, apparent reflection of the new no piling on policy because the SEC did not impose a civil penalty based upon the uh, imposition of a $47 million criminal fine by the Department of Justice. Probably for the compliance practitioner, Jay, there is a very direct and distinct message continuing in these series of cases, the Princeling cases. It is that if a son or daughter, family member, or close friend of a foreign government official does not meet your minimum hiring standards, that's the end of the story, full stop. You cannot hire that person. Now, uh, beyond that, uh, you can hire them. It is potentially a high-risk situation, but I think it's a high risk that can be easily managed. Uh, if you send them through the regular hiring process, if you ring fence them or, or uh, dare I use the phrase Chinese wall them from um, working on any matters involving their family relations or close personal friends, 
I think that that uh, risk can be managed appropriately and properly. But Credit Suisse clearly made the uh, decision that they were going to violate internal company policy. They tied the hires, promotions, uh, and salary increases directly to increased business. So it was a pretty clear violation of the FCPA and current understanding of it uh, as uh, the Department of Justice and SEC have interpreted it. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And just one uh, final note to tie to it. Charles Kane, chief of the SEC's FCPA unit, said bribery can take many forms, including granting employment to friends and relatives of government officials. So that really goes to underscore what's, you know, we always talk about anything of value. And that's why I think these um, hirings by the investment banks and even um you know, Qualcomm is, is so egregious that they were very much aware of the benefit that was being granted by bringing on these unqualified candidates. Um, next up, Tom's going to tell us about Homeland Security investigations, and they are part of ICE, and ICE has been in the news, uh, but they do a very different duty, and they really have a large part in FCPA investigations. So why don't you take it from there, Tom? Yes, uh, there is a agency within the department uh, or, or within ICE, the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency, named the Homeland Security Investigations. This is the investigative arm of ICE, and they have, uh, uh, I was frankly not aware of their role in FCPA investigations. And in a piece entitled The Forgotten FCPA Investigators by Clara Hudson over on the Global Investigations Reviews, she talks about uh, this agency, what it does, and it basically investigates crimes around the border. So uh, money's brought in, people brought in, uh, goods goods and products brought in. And in the, um, uh, in the piece, she detailed uh, uh, a plane that came in where <clears throat> the uh, records showed payments in um, round dollars. To uh, And simply from those bank records, they initiated a uh, FCPA investigation because clearly uh, when you have round dollar payments um, in financial documents, it, it can look like a bribe payment. It can certainly be a red flag. And they found customs documents for uh, equipment being shipped to Petavesa, for instance, which listed uh, grossly overpriced items that investigators believe were padding for bribe payments. So uh, certainly appropriate uh, in the... Um, when such information crosses the border. The problem for Homeland Security in investigations is that foreign governments and foreign officials, uh, foreign agencies are loath to um, cooperate with them now because of the controversy surrounding the, uh, not ICE policy, but immigration uh, or, or customs and border policy of separating families. And that Many foreign governments are, are right, were rightfully appalled at this. Certainly, the federal government has not moved to uh, reunite these families, so it's a continuing problem. And uh, indeed, uh, what we found was in June, uh, 19 SHI special agents uh, wrote that the um, functions of HSI in Homeland Security, excuse me, in ICE, we're causing confusion, uh, not only with the general public, but with uh, foreign investigative agencies. So uh, basically, um, it was a very interesting article about a group that uh, doesn't get a lot of publicity, uh, 
but it shows how the U.S. government has multiple ways to investigate or come up with information around uh, bribery and corruption. Yeah, re- really interesting article, Tom. Uh, I, I might have missed it. I've got uh, the gardeners outside making a big noise. But did you uh, did you get to say my my favorite words that come out of your mouth? Republic of Equatorial Guinea or not? I did not. Okay, because it says here, in one of HSI's higher-profile cases, its agents led an investigation into the vice president of the Republic of Equatorial Guinea, who allegedly accepted millions in bribes and kickbacks before embarking on a corruption-fueled spending spree in the U.S. So um, I uh, would just also want to echo what Tom says, that the uh, the uh, the timing of this is very interesting, Uh with uh, many of the Democrats wanting to dismantle ICE, you even have uh, their investigative arm wanting to uh, get away from the uh, the reputational risk of being uh, identified as rice as rice as ICE. So uh, very interesting there. Um, next up, uh, we're sticking with newsworthy stuff, and uh, Sam Rubenfeld has an article in I believe this morning's. Um, risk and compliance journal about ZTE. And um, Tom, what, what's the latest on that one? So ZTE, I think most of our listeners will recall, uh, negotiated a reprieve with the Department of Commerce from the uh, catastrophic or draconian sanction that they could not I- import any products from the United States uh, or, or buy exported U.S. products. And uh, as part of the uh, new settlement. They agreed to uh, U.S. uh, monitors embedded in the company, a billion-dollar fine and $400 stored in escrow. But CTE also had to make uh, significant changes at the top. So they had to bring in basically clean house at their senior executive level. They brought in a new chief as well as other top executives in an effort to comply with the, the new agreement, even with Congress claiming that uh, or trying to stop this going forward. So clearly ZTE wants to move forward under the new agreement. And uh, it looks like they're uh, beginning to uh, initiate the requirements under the Department of Commerce uh, settlement agreement. Whether they are able to continue to do so or not, we're going to have to watch it. But um, with ZTE moving forward, hopefully that uh, – you know, with the president's uh, very big concern about jobs in China, hopefully this will ameliorate his uh, concern of the loss of jobs in China uh, because of a company violating U.S. laws. So perhaps we'll see ZTE back up in place, but uh, Congress really uh, has yet to fully speak on this matter. So perhaps they're not as concerned about jobs in China as the president is. Uh, next up. Again, something from a risk and compliance journal. Our good friend Henry Cutter talks about uh, Jim Beam and the liquor maker of uh, Jim Beam and uh, Centauri Whiskey, which is called Beam Centauri, will pay an $8.2 million fine to settle an SEC investigation of alleged violations of counting provisions of the main U.S. anti-bribery law, uh, party said on Monday. Uh, the company, uh, which was acquired uh, by Japan Centauri Holdings in 2014, neither admitted nor denied the wrongdoing. 
Um, Beam Suntory Beam disclosed in 2012 that it had begun an internal investigation of practices and its Indian operations, saying at the time that it informed the SEC and the Department of Justice of the probe. And uh, the scheme involved third parties hired by Beam's Indian subsidiary who made illicit payments from at least 2006 to 2012 to government officials to increase sales, clear regulatory and clear regulatory hurdles. Those third parties were paid via falsified invoices, leading Beam India and ultimately Beam Inc. to falsely record expenses in the books. Uh, also, in 2011, a third, uh, 2011, a third-party bottler paid an Indian official about a million rupees, $18,000, or the equivalent of one year's salary, to approve the uh, registration of product Beam was trying to launch in India. Uh, the company company has agreed to pay $5.3 million uh, for its wrongdoing and roughly uh, 917000 in interest and a penalty of $2 million. So, uh this one, uh, again, we're going back to a uh, behavior that happened uh, almost uh, 12 years, a decade ago. So um, this is not the first time we've seen things happening in India. But um, I guess in terms of the, um, the size of the settlement, it does not jump onto the top 10 list, but it also uh, really does uh, point out um, – both successor liability, which Suntory Holdings had, and uh, just also about when you're doing business in uh, regions where bribery is known to exist, you, you really need to be extra cautious. And I guess I would just add, Jay, that this is uh, one of a series of cases we've seen specifically out of India where uh, it was the, the Indian third party that was the one paid the bribe. So obviously, uh, Oracle, perhaps not obviously, but Oracle started this parade. And then we had MBEV, uh, we had um, Cadbury's, uh, and now we've got uh, Jim Beam. So if you've got, uh, and, and in all of these, these were all uh, SEC settlements, uh, not Department of Justice settlements. And what that typically means is uh, they couldn't... Uh, get direct evidence of a bribe being paid. So here, um, um, once again, it's it's uh, focus on the books and records and uh, not recording things properly. So um, you're absolutely right. If you're doing business in a high-risk jurisdiction, and, and India is a high-risk jurisdiction, you need to scrub your third parties. You need to see if you've got anything in there that uh, could uh, potentially come back to bite you at the end of the day. So um, next up, we have a story that Tom has been following for several years. Uh, it is about the uh, investment from for Malaysia 1MDB. And what is the latest here, Tom? So this story has really taken off, Jay, with the election of the new uh, prime minister um, uh, who was brought in basically uh, because um, of the corruption that the prior prime minister, Mr. Najib Razak, had engaged in around the Sovereign Wealth Fund, 1MDB. And uh, in uh, May, he was uh, ousted by his former uh, mentor, uh, Matahir Mohammed, who campaigned on bringing him to justice and, uh, frankly, has done so because he and his wife were arrested and charged with uh, bribery and corruption. Uh, uh, this week, uh, they were released on bail. There are uh, were just very, very 
I won't say horrific, but some pretty striking uh, photographs and information about raids on his home, which found uh, well over uh, hundreds of millions of dollars in cash, jewelry. Um, for those of you who are purse people, 567 purses uh, from Jimmy Choo. Uh, I don't know if you're a Jimmy Choo fan. Uh, that's not big in the Fox household. Nevertheless, there are women who do like Jimmy Choo. So uh, rings, tiaras, uh, all forms of jewelry, lots of cash, uh, all in the uh, home of the former prime minister. The uh, Malaysian government has uh, frozen, I think it's 70 bank accounts, and are investigating another 400 individuals and companies who've done business with the Sovereign Wealth Fund. Uh, this, uh, you're right, Jay, I've been following this for many years. It's been a huge scandal, uh, literally across the world. Uh, we've had stolen money, uh, or dare I say purloined money, uh, that was invested in the United States in real estate in Manhattan, real estate in Los Angeles. Uh, the Wolf of Wall Street was largely funded on money alleged to have been stolen from one in MDB, uh, uh, other properties purchased in the United States. So uh, really, um, rarely do you see a former prime minister brought to justice uh, or at least arrested so quickly. And that uh, Malaysia really seems uh, very insistent on cleaning, cleaning up the mess uh, that was created by uh, prior Prime Minister Najib. All right. Next up, uh, we're going to take a look at an article written by Matt Kelly from Radical Compliance, uh, another compliance lesson from Michigan State. And unfortunately, we all know about the um, the situation with uh, Larry Nasser, who was a doctor affiliated with both the university, but both Michigan State, and also was the team physician for the uh, U.S. Um, uh, what? Uh, which team is it, Tom? I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to blank. U.S. U.S. gymnastics. Gymnastics, yeah. So uh, Tom has a couple different folks who are taking uh, issue with uh, how things are moving forward with. Uh, uh, the interim um, head of ethics and compliance at Michigan State, former Governor John Engler. And uh, what, what's got Matt steamed up today? So a couple of things. Uh, first of all, um, Engler uh, made uh, an announcement last week that they're creating a new office of ethics, risk management and compliance. And he told the Detroit, the Detroit Free Press in an interview that the new head of compliance will be in charge of seeing red flags. The uh, in a uh, just a scorching article uh, in response to this in a, a um, site called Freep F R E E P columnist Rochelle Riley excoriated Engler and said that uh, flags don't catch people, people catch people, and people listen to people, and dozens of girls might have been spared if the first ones. Uh, had been listened to. And Matt takes both of these points and really articulates that they are all part of an effective compliance program. So he said that in compliance jargon, we would say Riley is frustrated about escalation and tone at the top. She wants the victims to be heard. Governor Engler, the uh, uh, interim president of Michigan State, is focusing on institutional repair through procedure and transparency. 
And Matt comes down that you really need both. Uh, the problem for Engler now is uh, he made just some horrific comments prior to the resolution, the financial resolution with the victims. At one point, uh, even saying, uh, I think that one of the victims was getting a kickback from other victims. And um, very, very, very poor choice of words if it, if it was that. But uh, organizations have many constituencies. Uh, they have um, a board of directors. They have uh, stockholders. They have shareholders. They have third parties. They have employees. And a university, it's only more because you have uh, students. You have the parents of students. You have the public. Uh, you have, uh, like myself, alumni of Michigan State. And uh, the crisis at, at Michigan State now is about trust and unfortunately mistrust. And with the, the smear that Engler made on the former victim, it's, it can be difficult to see why um, there's um, or couldn't, uh, it would be not difficult to see why there is not such skepticism uh, involving uh, what they have in place. Now, they uh, named today an interim head for their compliance office. It's, it's uh, someone from their uh, school of law, but it's not clear uh, how this office is going to be funded. It's not clear what authority this person will, will have, the new CCO. Uh, what is clear is they, they have a huge mess, and they have got to do more than simply spot and respond to red flags. Uh, <coughs> the university is going to have to change its really its entire approach and certainly its tone. So uh, interesting uh, uh, critique by Matt, but really two sides of, of very important parts of any compliance program going forward. But I would guess I would come down, Jay, that if you don't have trust, you're never going to have uh, anything close to a successful uh, compliance program. Yeah, I would totally agree. Um, so moving from that, we are calling back another name that we've heard in the past, uh, Oxif, which was the first U.S. hedge fund to uh, get caught up in an FCPA investigation. And um, this is always kind of interesting when you're looking at rights to mines in Africa and who owns what and who does what. And um, basically, uh, I think you're going to have to help me because I've read this a few times and I'm not sure who's Zoom and who, but um, basically uh, rights to a mine were stolen from uh, by an African subsidiary of Oxif called OZ African Management. And uh, what happened was somebody had acquired rights to the mine uh, for about $600,000, but then they put it on their books and valued it at $100 million. And the sale and auction of this mine took place on a Sunday when all the DRC courts were closed. And uh, basically, the victims were looking for restitution here. And initially, I believe the government was confused as to what happened and who the restitution was due. And now there's a company called Africa Resources, which is uh, represented by w the law firm Wilson, Sincini, Goodrich, and Rosati. And uh, they are now looking to clarify the issue and get Oxif to make restitution. Did I not butcher that too badly? Nope, nope. You did a pretty good job. The um, um, rarely do you get a claim for restitution 
by a company impacted by bribery and corruption, or in this case, having a property stolen away from them. And that is exactly what happened to Africa Resources. We've seen previous examples for attempted restitution by the companies involved. Um, so the Haitian telecom company is probably the most prominent um, who sought uh, restitution, but they were they did not receive it. I think in large part because they were part of the uh, the group that uh, benefited from receiving the bribes. But here, Africo uh, uh, at least makes a very strong claim, Jay, that uh, they had the property stolen from them. Uh, the Department of Justice had originally uh, been under the uh, taking the position that Africo had. Uh, obtain the uh, bribery, excuse me, the mine through bribery and corruption or other nefarious means. Uh, but they uh, sought to have uh, the Department of Justice uh, revisit that issue and, and have done so. So it will be very interesting. I know the, the uh, court uh, was very critical of the OXIF uh, resolution, uh, mainly because only uh, one individual was uh, criminally prosecuted and it was a third party agent of OXIF, no OXIF principle. So it'll be interesting to see uh, whether or not Africa resources, Africo resources is successful in their restitution claim. And if they're successful, who else may come out of the woodwork? All right. Um, seems that we have a preponderance of articles today from Global Investigation Review, and we're picking up something that um, Pete Humphreys published earlier this week from the uh, GIR Women Investigations Conference in London on June 28th. And he t recounts a panel that was called Practical Aspects of International Investigation. And um, basically, they're really giving praise to U.S. regulators for being very technologically savvy and for uh, being able to use electronic methods, whether it's e-discovery or uh, any other type of artificial intelligence to try to help uh, really handle large volumes of documents and to, um, you know, make it much more uh, accessible for working on investigations. And a couple quotes that struck me as interesting was um, Rita Mitchell of Wilkie, Farr and Gallagher said, I'm not sure that there are enough junior attorneys in the world to deal with the amount of the information that is coming down the line. And um, there was also a situation where um, the UK Serious Fraud Office actually used uh, artificial intelligence in the Rolls-Royce investigation to really narrow down um, a set of documents. And basically, the SFO said that the technology helped it identify 2.35 million documents which were not privileged and could immediately be released to the case team. And uh, this was also utilized. Uh, Lord Justice Gross spoke uh, in a speech on disclosure at an event the Criminal Bar Association of England and Wales, and in the speech he said uh, when they there was a failure of uh, technology, it could potentially be avoided. Rather, there was a failure of um, coming up with uh, evidence in the Liam Allen rape trial, and he said that this kind of failure could potentially be avoided by using technology that could reduce the amount of time. So not only... Um, is AI important in, uh, you know, using uh, e-discovery? But one thing that was interesting is Cheryl Scarborough spoke about a case 
uh, and she's with Simpson, Thatcher, and Bartlett, and she said uh, that the U.S. government is more tech-savvy than ever before and open to accepting use of new technology. However, she cautioned that using AI does not always go with the plan, and she gave an example of a case where they had suggested that the client use software to translate you know, that's near and dear to my heart, material from the foreign language into English. Unfortunately, she said the technology failed, throwing up random words like dog and cat and refrigerator. She said going back over the translations to remove the nonsensical phrases would have cost too much and been too time consuming, but she was still happy to see that uh, the government was willing to give it a shot and give it a try. So, uh, Again, this is a theme that we seem to be talking about weekly about how AI can be used either internally as if you're a company to try to find any gaps that you need to cover or to anticipate trends, but it also can be used um, from the investigative perspective, and it seems like the DOJ is doing quite well on that front. Uh, anything to add on that, Tom? Uh no, I thought it was a it was a good summary. Although, frankly, I think as you point out, Jay, many of this, much of this, has been going on uh, for some time. Uh, but it does speak to uh, a role that was near and dear to your former heart as the uh, former Mister Translation. So, um, it's where we're going. That's for sure. So, uh, how how hot is it in Houston, and how was the book signing last week? So the book signing was good and a lot of fun. Um, so it's actually not too bad here, certainly not triple digits. We had eight inches of rain on the 4th, so that was our big news. Uh, but I do have some news about uh, some events next week, Jay. Sure. On Thursday, the Greater Houston Ethics Business Greater Houston Business and Ethics Roundtable, that's Gerber for those in Gerber. the know, that uh, Gerber, Gerber, we're holding our members-only summer workshop Thursday, July 12th from 9 to 3. Uh, Matt Kelly's going to join us. Jonathan Armstrong, excuse me, Jonathan Marks will join us. Uh, we've got Kara Brockmeyer coming down. Dan Chapman's going to talk to us about trade compliance. And Marsha Urshagami Hames is coming down from LRN to give our keynote lunch speech. So if you're a Gerber member, I hope you'll join us. It's free to all Gerber members. Uh, if you're not a Gerber member, sorry, this is a members only meeting. But the next day on Friday, uh, the 13th, uh, Jonathan Marks is going to speak to uh, the Houston Compliance Roundtable from 8 to 9 a.m. If you'd like more information, uh, you can contact me uh, at my email, and I'll certainly give that out to you as well. So two great compliance events in Houston next week, and uh, if you're around, I hope you can make one of them. Once again, affirming the fact that Houston is the center of the FCPA world. That's epicenter. Oh, so not Equatorial Guinea. Okay. So anyhow, yeah, I'll take us home. Uh, on behalf of Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, and myself, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for spending uh, this week in FCPA with us, episode 110, the post-holiday issue, and also the temperature here in Simi Valley. Um if you've listened to us on iTunes or Lipson, if you can like us, that will help our rankings go. And uh, we'd just like to, as always, thank you for uh, spending time with us, speaking about all things compliance, ethics, and FCPA. And uh, if you are on holiday already, uh, enjoy it. And if not, enjoy the weekend coming up.
And that's it. Thanks so much. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. Thanks again for listening to This Week in FCPA for the week ending July 6th. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.